Today I'm going to be preaching from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be preaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been with us in our house churches for the past year, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And um, I'm going to go into that today because uh, we've been digesting little portions of Jesus' first sermon here. And it's important from the pulpit to kind of preach on kind of like the macro perspective so that we get a glimpse of the big picture so that it helps us to understand um, the little bits and pieces that we do study uh, even better. And so today, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Let me give you some time to turn there on your phones or your physical Bibles. And we haven't done this in a long time, but uh, can we, if you are there, can we all stand for the reading of the Word of God together? From where you are, when you are there, can we all stand for the reading of God's Word? All right. I'm going to read it for us. This is the Word of God, the words of Jesus. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Uh, You may all have a seat. These are the words of Jesus when he preached his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Before I, you know, go in detail about this passage, let's zoom out real quick. And let me just give some background to this passage. Um, The macro theme, the big theme to remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching what you call, uh, he's preaching about the kingdom of God. Can we all say the kingdom of God? And this is the big macro theme of this whole sermon. And when we read the Bible, um, there's this word that we all know, a word that means good news. That word is gospel. The gospel means good news. And when we think about that word, the gospel, what we're talking about is actually the gospel of grace. The gospel of our salvation. The good news of salvation. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That our sins, he took upon himself on the cross while he imputed unto us his righteousness. And we are saved. We're called his children. The good news. But there's also a phrase in the the Bible. And if you read the Bible, you may have noticed it. It says, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Why is this so important? What Jesus is preaching here is not necessarily just the gospel of salvation. 
Jesus is preaching here the gospel of the kingdom, which means this. For those who believe in Jesus, we believe in the good news of grace, the good news of the gospel. We are saved. Hallelujah. But it's not just that. We're saved into his kingdom. We're saved into his culture. We're saved into the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is teaching here when he's preaching this, he's actually preaching this to believers. The Sermon on the Mount is for believers, the gospel of the kingdom. And what he's doing is he is teaching us his ways. The Bible says that you and I, we are now citizens of heaven. Once we become a Christian, we have permanent citizenship in his kingdom. Which means this. We got to learn his ways. We got to learn the ways of his kingdom. We got to learn the ways that his kingdom operates. Now, the word kingdom in Greek is basileia. It means reign. Can everyone say reign? Not like rain, rain, but reign like a king reigns. To rule and to reign. Kingdom means rule, reign, sovereignty, authority. And when Jesus says he's preaching on the kingdom, he's talking about his rule and reign on this earth. But not only his rule and reign on this earth, his rule and reign in our hearts. When we pray, let your kingdom come, we're praying this, Lord, would you be the king of my heart? Would you rule and reign in my life? And collectively, he rules and reigns in his church, in his body. And with the church and through the church, he rules and reigns on this earth as our king. That's the kingdom of God right there. That's what he's preaching on right here. And you know, let's zoom out even, let's zoom out even more. And let's look at the whole Bible. When God created Adam and Eve, he said that we would, he made us, he made man that we would rule and reign and take dominion on the earth with him. That was his original design. What happens? Sin comes into the picture. Genesis 11, they build the Tower of Babel. And then what does man say? Let's build a kingdom. Let's build a name for ourselves. Forget God's kingdom. Let's build our own kingdom. And the rest of the Old Testament, what do we see? You know, a lot of us were doing the one-year Bible reading. And right now we've recently finished Jeremiah and Isaiah. And now we are in Ezekiel. Some of us were catching up, myself included, right? These prophets in the Old Testament, what do we see here? We see kings after kings after kings after kings trying to rule and reign their kingdom. But they're depending on themselves. There's so many evil kings in the Bible. So the kings, they fail and fail and fail. No matter how righteous they are, they fail. 
And then they go, the country goes under discipline. Babylon takes his people under captivity. Right? And then what happens? The prophets come. Now we read Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. It's depressing, isn't it? Most of it is depressing. How many times we have failed? How many times we have again and again and again lived out the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? But then there's hope in all of the prophets. Hope that there is going to be a coming king. It's set up. And then there's 400 400 years of silence where the people of God, they're held under captivity and they're waiting for this king. We want a king. We want a king like we used to have. 400 years of silence and then people are waiting for these prophetic words that there's going to be a coming king that's going to rule and reign and bring victory for our people. And then all of a sudden in the book of Matthew, which... Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. It starts with a lineage. And in in this lineage, it points to the seed of all these kings. David, right? Abraham, David. And then, who is to come from this lineage? The coming king. His name is Jesus. He comes in a way to what? To rule and reign. But guess what? It's not what people expected. It's not the way that we expected. You see, humans, we have a way that we want kings to rule and reign. We have a way which we think is best. But the truth is, even in the Bible, what do we see? Even the people waiting for him didn't get it. Here's God's way. Here's the way of Jesus, and this is what he's preaching, the gospel of the kingdom. His way is this, that his kingdom will come with his church and through his church in partnership. There's coming a day when Jesus returns and the church is made holy. Yes, that day is coming. When Jesus will finally redeem what we messed up with. And he will bring the kingdom to its fullness. We will be one. No more tears. No more suffering. No more judgment. No more disunity in the body of Christ. We will be one. And Jesus will be our king and he will rule and reign. That is what we are looking forward to. Amen? Hallelujah. That is... The context, that's the background of what we're reading here. So here he is, Jesus. First sermon. What does he start with? He starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart for those who mourn. He begins to preach all these things that people were not expecting. Here is King Jesus about to give his first sermon And then all of a sudden, he's like, people are probably expecting, okay, how is he going to tear down this Roman Empire? How is he going to tear down our oppressors? And he's going to bring his rule and reign, like the prophecy said. No. What does Jesus start with? Heart issues. He starts with the human heart. 
And people are like, what? What is he doing? What is he saying? You see, the way Jesus shows us is that he wants his kingdom to come first in our hearts. I love, actually, I love, um, there's a pastor named Chris Vallotton. He says this quote, he says, we started this in our Bible study. I'm just going to remind us. He says, the invisible kingdom inside a person ultimately becomes the visible kingdom around them. Meaning, the transformation of the gospel in our hearts will lead to the transformation of society. Ultimately, when Jesus returns. That's the way that Jesus teaches. His rule and reign within the church, His rule and reign with His church, in his rule and reign when he returns with the church. Did you know that Christians, when Jesus comes back, we're going to rule and reign with him? That's crazy. Did you know that you know, in the Bible when God's original design, he said he made Adam and Eve to you know, dominion. To cultivate, to dominate, to rule with him. That's his original design. He intends to restore that. The fullness of it is when he returns. But for now, for now, until he returns, guess what? Look to your left and right. All of us, the church, we're meant to manifest this kingdom little by little. And with this context, Jesus says, Hey, you are salt. His very first metaphor. Jesus' very first metaphor. You are salt. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you are salt. Right? You are salt. (laughs) So salt, in that time, we got to understand, when Jesus said it, How did the people receive it? What was their understanding of salt? In that time, it's different than today in that salt is not that expensive today. Salt is cheap, right? Back then, salt was expensive. Salt was precious, valuable. It was actually used as currency. Can you imagine me coming to Daniel and like, yo, can I buy that? I'll give you one bag of salt. It's, It's dumb right now, but back then, it was valuable. Salt was also used as a preservative because they didn't have nengjangos and like stuff to put their meat and food in. So meat in. So they put salt on to preserve it. Salt was meant to purify and kill bacteria. Salt is made for healing. There's a lot of analogies that we can use here. But I want to point out something here. Roman soldiers, they used, they, they were paid with salt actually at that time. The Greeks... They thought salt was actually very divine. And in the Old Testament, check this out. Salt was used when people made a covenant. In the law, in Leviticus, it says this. It says this command in the law. Season all your grain offerings. Season all your offerings with salt. Every 
animal sacrifice offering made in the Old Testament, God commanded there to be salt on it. Practical reasons, so that it's fresh, so that it's pure. Because all sacrifice unto the Lord has to be pure and undefiled. Salt also symbolized to the Jewish people. It also symbolized people actually, when they made deals and covenants, they actually ate salt together. Salt was like a covenant marker. And so, what does this mean? What does this salt to the Jewish people, what does it symbolize? It, it symbolizes preservation and keeping pure. Preservation and keeping pure. Now check this out. For salt, it says Jesus says, you are the salt. And then he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And he's saying this, you're salt, but don't lose your saltiness. But the question is, how can we lose our saltiness? How can salt not be salt? Salt is NaCl, right? Sodium chloride. Salt is salt. It'll always be salt. So what is Jesus talking about here when he says, losing your saltiness? I have an embarrassing story to share to kind of uh, explain this, what Jesus is talking about here. Some of you guys know this story. I'm embarrassed. This is more of a confession, okay? Uh, back in the day, in, in, in college, I used to work at Starbucks. I used to work at Starbucks. I was a barista there. And then I worked the morning shift. And in the morning shift, people are moving really fast. People are trying to, trying to go, go, go. So people are rude. They need their coffee fix. They're, you know, they're very mean to the cashiers and the baristas. And I remember one time, I'll share two examples. I remember one time where this lady, and I was giving her coffee, and she was being so mean to me. She like, you know, tossed me her credit card. She was being, I was getting so annoyed with her, right? This is not a good example for me, you know. But like, so annoyed with her. And so I did something very wicked. No, I didn't spit in it, right? <laughs> I gave her decaf coffee. <laughs> right? <laughs> Very mean, right? You need your caffeine, but she got decaf. Did she know? She didn't know. She walked away. Another Starbucks moment was there was a time when I made a green tea frappuccino for someone. And then I put it on. I put the whipped cream on top. Here you go. Have a nice day. And this man started yelling at me. Do you not understand what I'm trying to say out of my mouth? I said, no whipped cream, sir. No whipped cream. And I was like, I'm sorry, sir. I'll make you another one. You know what I did? This is so bad, right? I, get, I got it back. I went to the back. I did not spit in it. I put the whole thing, including the whipped cream, in the blender. I put more whipped cream. And I blended it. And I put it back in the cup. No whipped cream on top. And like, Here you go, sir. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Because, you know, yeah, I'm terrible. Because they have diabetes. You know what I mean? Like, I'm terrible. That's bad. Right? Now, this example is uh, kind of silly, but the reason why I'm sharing these is because this. To the visible eye, they don't know the difference. 
They don't know the difference. What is a pure green tea frappuccino with no whip or a pure caffeinated coffee? They don't know. You know, in these times, salt was so valuable. Salt was so valuable that people paid with salt. I said that, right? But here's the thing. There was always mixture of salt. Because there were all these different minerals that actually looked like salt from the Dead Sea. But it looked the same. It looked the same. Now imagine with me if I had a table right here and I had salt here and I had sugar here. And I said to you guys, you know, take the salt. You know, it's very hard to tell. Now imagine I had a salt pile, a sugar pile, and then I had a third pile and it was mixed with both salt and sugar. I think it would look the same as salt. Maybe a little more crystally. I know you go, you guys are thinking like salt, sugar is more crystally. Like there's different kinds, okay? But you get the point. That third pile of mixture of both salt and sugar, it has lost its saltiness. It has lost its usefulness. It has lost its effectiveness. NaCl is in there, but there's so much mixture. And Jesus says, you are salt. So how can we be effective in being a preserative, in, being, in bringing holiness into society, in bringing the kingdom in our workplaces, in our relationships, in those around us, if we are losing our saltiness? Here's a point here. Here's a point here. R.T. Kendall said it best. He said, losing saltiness is our Lord's way of describing a Christian who loses the anointing of the Spirit. When we lose our saltiness in the mixture of this world, the ideologies of this world, the ways of this world, on top of that, sin, on top of that, I shared on this, consumeristic tendencies, individualistic tendencies, selfishness, desire and indulging in the flesh. Let me get one thing, let me make one thing clear. When we do these things, when we sin, the Holy Spirit is still in us. But the way, when we make our decisions, it will influence our saltiness. It will influence the anointing of the Spirit upon us. So many times as a, as a preacher, before I come up here, I'm like, I pray, God, would you anoint me? And I got so used to that. I just say automatically, God, would you anoint me? Empower me. Fill me with your Spirit so that I can preach effectively. And there are times I, when I ask, I feel so convicted. I, something's off in my heart. And I realize I haven't repented of certain sins in my life. How can I ask God to empower me and anoint me when I have so much mixture in my heart? I'm adulterated, right? 
You know, when we don't have an anointing, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit empowering in your life. Raise your hand if you need the anointing in your life. The anointing is not just for church leaders and pastors and priests. The anointing is for every single one of us believers, citizens of heaven. We all need the anointing to live out what it means to walk in the Spirit. To walk in holiness. When we read the Bible, we feel overwhelmed. I can't do it. Which is, by the way, most of the Bible. We can't do it. We need the anointing of the Spirit. But the way we treat sin, our view of sin, we have to take seriously. Because it will affect the anointing upon you. And when you you don't have the anointing upon us, what happens? We become less aware of His presence. We have less clarity with His voice. Our discernment goes out the window. We are left vulnerable to the devil. We'll, we'll believe anything thrown at us. Our discernment will go out the window. We're less attuned to His desires. Less desire for honoring the Holy Spirit inside of us. Less participation with His sanctification. And guess what? Less fruit of the Spirit. Less love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, less of that cultivating in our hearts. Our growth will be stunted. Jesus says in Mark 9.50, it's interesting. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. How is salt and being peace with one another, how is that related? It's so related. Because we need the Holy Spirit the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit to be at peace with one another. Leonard Ravenhill said this, The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world, to make him holy, then put him back into that unholy world, And keep him holy in it. I'll read that again. The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world. Make him holy. Then put him back into that unholy world. And keep him holy in it. What does it mean to be salt? It means to be committed to purity. Stay pure. Honoring the Holy Spirit in our lives. Stewarding the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Staying in the truth. When we're not staying in the truth, we're going to be so contaminated with the influences of the world around us. I believe that if we want to really be effective and useful, because, you know, Jesus is talking about usefulness here. He's not talking about our identity as children of God. He's talking about usefulness. Man. Holiness. We need to prioritize holiness. Amen? And then he says, light. Shine as light. Shine as light. What does light do? 
Again, there's a lot of uh, analogies and metaphors for light. Uh, light illuminates, light exposes, light warms, right? light guides. There's a lot of things about light. Um, back in these uh, New Testament times, the people that taught, they're called rabbis. Rabbis taught the law. These rabbis, especially the really respected ones, they were called the lights, the lamps of the universe. The, the, they were termed the lamps of the universe. These eminent rabbis, these teachers of truth, they were known as lights. So light actually was related to what came out of the mouth, what was taught, what was spoken. Light illuminates. You see, when it's a dark room here, and then someone turns on the lights, when the light turns on, none of us in here are going to be like, wow, the light. Wow, right? Wow, we're not going to be fixated on the light. When the light turns on, what do we look at? We're looking at what the light illuminates, each other, one another. You see, for us, when we're called to be the light of the world, we're not called to draw attention to ourselves. We're called to point to Christ and His kingdom. But think about this idea that the rabbis, they're known as light, lamps of the universe, because of what they taught, because of what they said. Now, there's a lot I can say about light, but I just want to point out this one thing that was so, it blew my mind. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this. Let's see what Paul says about light. It says this. Do all things without grumbling, without complaining, without disputing or arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you... Shine as lights of the world. Shine as lights of the world. What is Apostle Paul saying here? It's so interesting. He's saying this. How do you shine as lights? Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't argue. He's speaking about things that come out of our mouths. Which, by the way, the Bible says, out of the overflow of our hearts. Our mouth speaks. Right? He says there's a connection to the things that come out of our mouths and influence in being light. And this is right after Paul spoke on humility, by the way. And it's interesting the word choice Paul uses. He's saying, shine in the darkness, shine as light in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. You know where Paul got that from? He got that from Deuteronomy. When Moses was calling the Israelites a crooked and perverse generation. Verbatim, word for word. Why? Because the Israelites did what? They complained. They complained. Complaining, by the way, at times, is needed. What do you guys think? Complaining as human beings is needed. 
Sometimes when we suppress it too much, it's not healthy for us, right? But let me say this. I'm contextualizing to our human condition, by the way. But let me say this. But maintaining and cultivating a complaining heart is a different story. Maintaining and cultivating a complaining heart will only sap one's heart of faith. It will blur our kingdom perspective. It will affect the way that we see one another. It will snuff out our influence and set apartness in this world. Brothers and sisters, we're called to be people of light and life. Light and life. What are the things that are brewing in our hearts and minds? What are the things that are actually coming out of our mouth? We are called to be people of life. Speaking hope. Speaking from God's perspective. A people of grace. When Paul is saying this, be people of light, don't complain. He's talking not just about outward action. He's talking about heart issue. A heart issue. And it's so interesting because Paul, he's writing this, he's saying this in prison. Where he's getting beaten up unjustly for something he didn't do wrong. He's in prison suffering. He has every right. He can complain, can't he? I don't know if we have been beaten or, you know, in prison, but I would complain. (laughs) I'll complain. But there's no entitlement we see right now in Paul. No complaining. And when we look at Paul's life, did he not shine? Did he not shine? Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Church, I'm not trying to just share a simple message. Guys, what did we learn in church today? Let's not complain. Okay. Let's go home now, right? No. Can we remember the macro perspective that I was talking about? That Jesus intends to rule and reign in his church, in our hearts, and with his church. And to be salt, and to be light, and to have influence here in this world. And by the way, he doesn't need us, but he wants to partner together. The beauty of this story is this, that the Bible says that Jesus is sanctifying his bride. Jesus is purifying his bride. That's all of us in here. That's good news. He's causing us to live holy and blameless. Because why? Because it's for God's glory. It's unto his kingdom. But at the same time, it's for our good. At the same time, it's for our good. Salt and light. So to close the recap, I want to reiterate 
what Jesus was preaching. The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel, not just about our individual salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom, the bigger picture. That after we're saved, we get to rule and reign with him. We are made to be pure, holy, and committed, like salt. We're made to shine and reflect Christ. And may our hearts and our mouths be used as a vessel to release words of life that this world desperately needs right now. If you've been on social media or the news, we need life, guys. <laughs> we need words of life. We need ambassadors for Christ. We need kingdom citizens to represent Christ. We need to guard our hearts against mixture of, the, of what the world is tempting us. And I'll, I say this because all of us, you know, the default is not, I'm not contaminated. <laughs> Let's be honest. The default is we are contaminated. And we're most likely to stray into being contaminated. That's the default. But the hope is this. The hope is the grace of being able to repent. And ask boldly. Lord, I ask you for the Holy Spirit. I ask you for the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of... Near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, you know what Jesus says? He says, ask, seek, knock, and I will give you, it says specifically in Luke's version, I will give you the Holy Spirit. To empower you to live everything I just preached. Every, Jesus is saying, everything I just preached, we're going to experience and see the fullness of it when he returns. But up until then, we are to ask boldly the Holy Spirit for His anointing to be able to live this out now. We don't just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We live that out by committing to godliness and holiness. And where we slip up, we receive His kindness. We repent, we turn back and we ask, Lord, anoint me, Lord. Because I need your anointing. I need your empowering spirit.